2 Corinthians. We'll begin this morning. We're going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 14. We'll not get anywhere near to covering that, but it's really an opportunity for us to get a little bit into the book in our reading. And uh, we will uh, follow that up in the next few weeks. It'll take me probably a little more than a month to get through these verses for a variety of reasons, one of which is that I'm only preaching every other week. So next week we'll have Pastor Silcott, then we'll be in 2 Corinthians, then we'll have the baptism, and then I'll be back in 2 Corinthians, and then who knows what. So that's plan B. So we'll get through this. Okay, so 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version as is my custom. God's Word declares, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in all Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or... If we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake of the consolation. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust, that he will still deliver us, you also, helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even to the end, as also you understood us in part, that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of our, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians is a book that's focused on a church and its worship. We looked at the requirements of what God anticipates for a church. That we worship in spirit and truth, that we worship in purity and righteousness, that we worship by God's designs, not the traditions of men. That is not, our worship is not for our own experientiality, but it is rather for service. A service, first of all, to God and reminding ourselves who we worship and by what power we worship Him, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it also is a ministry of service to one another. That if there is division and discord within the church, that there is puffing up of ourselves, and there is no edification of one another, that we have failed in our worship. If you walk out of here having a singular experience that is unique to you and is shared by no one else, and shared with no one else, you have not done worship God's way. Not that God can't work individually in our lives, certainly He does. But uh, the requirement of true worship for the church is to glorify God by edifying His body. Each member in particular, through the exercise of our spiritual gifts, through the exercise of righteousness and holiness, 
the, the exercise of doing things properly and orderly. Knowing each of us have a role and those roles are not diminished in God's sight if they are done to His, according to His precepts and by His power. Once we begin to usurp those and come to our worship in a casual manner, we run into error. Whether it be the Corinthians taking a casual view of the Lord's table, casual view of their giving, we're going to see that come up again in 2 Corinthians and develop more fully, a casual view of their marriage. We come to God casually, as though God is just should just be happy I'm here. Um, God is not pleased and He doesn't receive such worship. It has been the movement for the last 30 years for the church to move its worship to become more and more casual from our dress to our music to our behavior. That we are casual in when we do it, we are casual in our promptness, we are casual in our attire, we are casual in whether or not we sing with all of our heart, mind, soul, and voice. I put that in there instead of strength. We're casual in our handling of God's Word. We are casual in our obedience to what we hear of God's Word. The church is some social club where we have a snack, sip our coffee, and put on a front. The Corinthians have become casual in their worship. And we learned, hopefully, that we are going to conform ourselves to God's dictates in our worship and not to man's. And we have been challenged. And hopefully we will continue to take those challenges to heart, bring them into our very lives, and submit ourselves to them. We come to 2 Corinthians and... We are still dealing with the church, but in a very different model. No longer are we now dealing with our church and its worship. We are now dealing with the church and its pastor. How does the church rightly engage with its leadership? Paul is going to take extensive study, and, and some have even contended that 2 Corinthians really doesn't belong in the um, epistles to churches, but rather among the pastoral epistles, that is, among the shepherding or the pastor letters. That as First and Second Timothy and Titus are written to pastor, young pastors, describing their role, that 2 Corinthians kind of becomes Paul's autobiographical study of his ministry, particularly in Corinth. And thus, while it's an ecclesiastical letter, it is also a pastoral letter. And so, certainly other aspects are going to come into play, but the predominant nature of 2 Corinthians is what is the relationship between spiritual authority of humankind, of pastors, elders, bishops, and the church. We do not have the benefit of apostleships as Paul carried, but that apparently didn't prevent the same problems happening against Paul as happen against pastors today. Nor did it equip the church somehow uniquely that our church cannot be equipped. The pastor has an identical role to his church. And so there are going to be many service sermons that are going to be about uh, and directed toward my office. And you will see that very quickly coming into play in chapter 1. What is the pastor's responsibility and role? What should be his attitude and perspective? But also, what is the church's responsibility? How are you to benefit from it? How are you to respond to it? And what are your responsibilities toward that one or those ones 
who minister to you. And so we have this, this conclusion, really, for the Corinthians in terms of what we have in record. As we move from doing right worship, now we can move into right relationship with leadership. That rather than being adversarial, there ought to be a different relationship. But recognizing that there will always be adversity to godly leadership in the church's life and in your life. There will always be those that want to question not only the individuals involved, beyond what Scripture calls us to, but even to that which they're teaching. And so is what happened in the Corinthian church. While they worked hard to get their worship right and seemed to be responsive to Paul, they still entered into their church those that would attack the established leadership of it. As we get into our study of Second Corinthians, with that in mind, that background somewhat there, let's go, Lord, in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for these past years studying your instruction for us in our worship. And Lord, we know that we haven't perfectly applied that. And so we strive after it more and more. And we continue to ask for your direction that we might not, as we leave the study of the book, leave the material that was there for us, that we might not cease to think on it, to meditate upon it, and to live it. Lord, as we look into this second letter to this church, our prayer is that you might guide us and direct us as always. Guard us. By your Spirit, you might illuminate our minds and hearts to its truth. And Lord, that we might be found humble enough to subordinate ourselves to that truth. Lord, we know that that is not our nature. So our prayer is that you might be patient with us as we engage in that warfare within ourselves that you have already conquered and been victorious in through Jesus Christ. Let us discover that victory as we engage the material before us in your word. Again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth, for its authority. And Lord, our prayer again is that you might have the liberty to move this hour. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we begin by an introduction again to the author of the book, and that is Paul. He is, of course, along with Timothy, uh, writing to them in the course of the book. We are going to find that Titus has joined them, and, and Titus is the one that this time is bringing the report um, there are some logistics that we deal with when we come to Second Corinthians that uh, I'm not going to get wrapped up in too tightly, but it's going to affect some of our work, uh, particularly when we get to chapter 2 uh, and when we get a little bit farther on chapter 7. We're going to have to deal with some aspects of what was the historicity of what was going on um, between First and Second Corinthians. Uh, we know that there was either a second letter in between these two, a visit in between these two uh, letters where Paul apparently had a brief visit there in Corinthians, uh, possibly wrote a third letter that would be in between these two. Some have conjectured that really the last four chapters of Second Corinthians are that letter. Um, I wouldn't hold to that. I don't know how the churches would have gotten so befuddled as to put a letter at the end of another letter. Um, but we'll address that when we get to chapter 2 more thoroughly. But the fact is that Paul has had a relationship with this church that has been interactive now 
and uh, he has seen them respond to the material in 1 Corinthians, but he's not the only one interacting with this church in this interim period between 1 and 2 Corinthians. Others have shown up, and we find in evidence in 2 Corinthians that some of the things Paul had to deal with in this interim period was the uh, coming into the church of these false teachers, whether they be Jews or Judaizers or Gnostics, um, we can't always necessarily put our finger on it. And I don't know that they are that distinguishable anyway uh, in many respects. Many Judaizers were had Gnostic background uh, of a Jewish nature. The Jews would have come in and been Judaizers. And so it's difficult to always distinguish them. I don't know that we really need to because all of them are are doing damage to the gospel. Uh, they came in, and as Paul has dealt with in, in the Galatian churches, um, so he's going to deal with uh, here in Corinth, he's going to deal with this infusion of people that come in claiming spiritual knowledge and, and claiming uh, some insight, uh, secret things that uh, Paul doesn't get. He's a simpleton. Uh, and after all, Paul is uh, uh, not a good speaker. And, and, you know, he's this and he's that. And they started to denigrate Paul um, among the church and whether that happened or was going on prior to first corinthians or in the midst of what was going on in first corinthians uh, we we don't really see it extensively we see some natural divisions among the people but we don't see this exterior uh influence that we seem to find in second corinthians and so we look at this time period between these two books as a very critical time in the corinthian church when they are given this information so they're given first corinthians and and how to direct their worship and resolve some of these issues going on in the church that were very serious moral issues of worship of of lifestyle um and he's going to address those and it seems that the church tackled those they had the right spirit and heart they wanted to tackle those but even as they were in the process of doing that along come these individuals who claim that they have more to offer. Uh, mixed up with all of this um, is uh, the other issues of what's going on in the larger area of Achaia. And so we find that Paul not only writes this to a single church in Corinth in verse 1, but also with all the saints who are in all that region. And so he's really talking about this entire uh, area, southern Greece, today and he's going to talk to all the saints in that area because much of what's going on is not just happening in one church isolated incident but rather that these men are going around and about the churches in the area and paul wants to establish uh, a differentiation between them them and him that they come in and they're seeking money and fame and they have no sufferings and they they have almost a health wealth gospel um, he comes in and works and earns his way and gets beat up and run out of town. And, those, that, and he's going to talk about his tribulations. And which one is the model Christian? Which one is the pattern that, that uh, we ought to identify as godly? Is it these people who seem that everything goes right for them and they, they have this model? They're, they're eloquent. They uh, have secret knowledge and they, they have this idea that if you're God's child, that everything should go wonderful for you. And they expect to be paid for that message, sometimes dearly. And then there's another model over here represented by Paul who um, isn't the greatest speaker. Uh, he's not going to be invited to anything like that. He is uh, in your face not only in his writing, but in his speaking style. Nothing to look at. Um, doesn't carry a big purse with him. Doesn't want to be paid by anyone. Uh, works his way through life and is suffering. Suffered extensively. And he's going to have to take some time to explore that. And the question that is being brought to the Corinthian church is, which one of these models do you think God is blessing? Because we come to this choice from our culture, which is not very different from the Corinthian culture. We saw that in that previous book, how similar we are 
to where Corinth was. And we say, well, that was Sin City, Carnal City. You know, and, and yeah, that's where we are. Uh, we have brought all of the mess of the world that normally would be hand-delivered by sailors traveling through Corinth. We bring it in via media into our lives every moment of every day. And we expose to all of this. And whether you want to admit to it or not, and that's the big problem is we don't admit to it, it influences our thinking. It influences our lives. It influences our morality. It influences our worship. And when we look at that choice, the predominant response we have is that, well, this is what I'd rather have. This choice over here. And that's why these people prosper so much is because they seek to represent a materialistic, almost hedonistic perspective of the gospel that attracts our natural man. And their assault on an individual like Paul is received. Because after all, Paul tells us hard things that are hard to understand. And boy, you're going to run into that a lot here in 2 Corinthians. And it's hard to live. And the fact is, is that the church, Western church, has largely followed those who would have done the damage to Paul that he is trying to counter in this book. So we're going to talk about a historical study of ministry. The God's view of what success in ministry in terms of leadership is going to be very different than man's view. That accountability does not begin and end with the church for the pastor. It begins and ends with God and His Word. That accountability for the church does not begin and end with the pastor. It has the same beginning and the same end, God and His Word. That this is what we are measured against. And that when we see individuals who are willing to suffer and pour themselves out even to death for the sake of ministry, not for the sake of self-aggrandizement, not even for your pity. Paul doesn't want that. Not so you'll feel sorry for him and give him the Heisman. <laughs> Had to throw it in there, sorry. But for the truth. Who will follow him because this is what real Christianity looks like and will come. If we're really, really, really living out the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we will have adversity. We saw that there at the end of 1 Corinthians. And, and if we are looking to this other model, this model um, that uh, uh, we like because it appeals to our natural man, uh, and then we encounter opposition, we encounter discomfort, and we encounter uh, enemies and hardships, we are then disgruntled with our faith and saying, oh, it didn't work. And we throw it away. Or we do a horrific thing and point our little bony fingers up to God and say, how can you let this happen to me after all I've done for you? And Paul says, listen, the Christian experience is one of joy and peace, love that passes understanding. It is all in, in a spiritual realm, and but you are not in heaven and so your experience is going to be, in this world, is going to be opposition. And you're going to have to join in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow Him. And these men are not preparing you for that. But I have already lived that and can give you an example to follow when the time comes for your testing for your trials for your tribulations in this world and so paul sees the influence not only in one church but in the region 
He goes to his classic introduction that what he wants for them is grace and peace. God would give you what you do not deserve and among them is peace. And these people stir up not peace but contention. This is not the natural division of following after one man's teaching we saw in 1 Corinthians. This is a contentiousness that has a singular focus and that is I'm going to try to undo the work of my predecessor. By attacking his person first. This is not the peace that God calls us to. But rather we can teach the truth in love. We can do it without um, fear of violating this truth that God, a right relationship with God should bring peace. We do not need to attack the person. We can simply attack and address the principles. The church should be like those of Berean who take that instruction, pick up God's word, and carefully consider them. But the Corinthians weren't really known for that. And so they got caught up in it and allowed one of their own to assault Paul in such a vehement manner that Paul apparently had to directly deal with that individual. And the church responded. And that's one of the great things about studying Corinthians is that it didn't fall on deaf ears. The people, from everything we can discover, both within and and from extra-biblical material, is that they responded to Paul's admonitions. In the interim period, they had responded to Paul's calling for them to uh, remove this false individual who had attacked not only him, but the gospel, more importantly. And he wants now to direct them in the right relationship between a pastor and his people. That they might not just be dependent upon Paul That wasn't his goal. But rather that from this time forward they could examine what is a good pastor. Who is a good model for us to follow? What evidences are we to be looking for that distinguishes godly biblical leadership from that which is simply serving themselves and not the people of God? And we get into it right away in 2 Corinthians. Paul doesn't Uh, beat around the bush, he gets right to it. And we come to verse 3 and following. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And we can get tied up in here and hear the word comfort, you know, six times and go, I can't keep track of this all. Well, it's very simple. And that is that God is not an ogre, He is not the one who brings the trials and tribulations into your life. It is the world. It is yourself with your own choices. You bring that misery in. The world brings that misery in. The enemies of the cross of Christ bring it in. False teachers bring it in. False uh, belief systems bring it into our lives. And uh, when we encounter that kind of tribulation and trials, God is not the one who is invoking them against you and bringing that misery in. He is the God of grace and peace. And that has been produced here or or represented here again, uh, slightly different with a little bit uh, more meaning in verse 3 of mercies and comfort. That God's role, before you start pointing your finger up at Him and start blaming Him for your trials and tribulations and troubles and miseries, God's role through His men, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the Word, through the ministry of spiritual leadership in your life, whether it be within your home or within your church or society, is mercy and comfort. And quickly we can take our minds back to uh, Isaiah, where Isaiah, after several 39 chapters of, of condemnation and, and 
and seeing the sin of the people around him and his own sin in, in chapter 6 and, and seeing the woe, 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 woe. He comes to chapter 40 and God says, it's time for to, to comfort my people. I have a solution to all these problems. And the solution is the suffering servant that, that is now introduced and, and fully developed. It's been spoken of in the earlier chapters. It's been alluded to that, that he, there's going to be a virgin-born child who's, who's going to be... No, no, his name is going to be Father, uh, Heavenly, and, and, and he's been introduced, but, but now we're going to fully develop. Why is he here? The suffering servant of Christ. That if that other model is correct, then Christ himself fails to be your pastor. The comfort that Isaiah taught there in chapter 40 is a result of the suffering of the servant of God. And Paul's going to pick this up and run with it. That if we expect that our own Savior suffered, even to the point of death, how can we conceive that somehow a representative of that message is going to come to us without that? So Paul says, listen, anything that happens to me I find comfort in God, and by my example, you can find comfort. That nothing can overwhelm the true follower of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Nothing of this world. Why? Because of our God. Not because we've got the best pastor. Not because we've got the right version of the Bible. Not because of any of those things. It's because we have a God of mercy. We deserve to be overwhelmed. Frankly, we look at the Corinthian church and says, oh man, they're so screwed up. They deserve to be decimated by someone coming in. And if they're foolish enough to follow it, then throw my hands up and walk away. And frankly, um, that's been the attitude in a lot of um, church history here in the last hundred years. As conservative biblical churches have just had to throw their hands up and walk away from fellowships of churches that, and seminaries and colleges that went into liberalism. And Paul isn't ready to do that. He says, no, God is about uh, the mercy to draw you out and to deliver you from that which you really deserve. You deserve His judgment for following these kinds of guys. But we have a God who is merciful And He is not the one that is the bringer of these tribulations. He is not the one who is the bringer of this misery. He is not the one who is doing injury to you in your walk. That is the world, and don't you dare point your finger at Him and blame Him for your troubles, particularly when those troubles are the result of your own decisions. To ignore God's Word, it's plain teaching. Ignore the biblical examples God's put in your life, and to go off, and live like the world, and think nothing of it. And then when things don't go well, we want to blame God. How could God let me down like this? Well, He didn't, and He won't, and He hasn't. He is God of mercies and comfort. And Paul is going to draw us into uh, His role and in his view of understanding that all the things he suffered, all the beatings that he's taken, all of the adversity that he has confronted um, from shipwrecks, um, and, and he's going to go on and just list them extensively. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on those passages. They're just a historical narrative, really, for Paul of his sufferings. But what they move us to is to understand that Paul's ministry, even his harsh letter that he's going to talk about in chapter 2 and following and, and that happened apparently in the intermediate period, but even if he is referring to something in 1 Corinthians, um, any harshness that comes off from him is couched in his desire to bring comfort to them. And real comfort is not coddling sin. Genuine, loving comfort is what Paul wrote in his own hand at the last letter, and that is anathema and maranatha. I want you to avoid it. Love the Lord. Do not be cursed at Christ's coming. And that is the most unloving act anyone can do. And so Paul says, listen, yeah, I'm harsh when I need to be. 
or you might perceive it to be that, but it's not out of a, a meanness. It is not out of anything of myself, but rather it is directive because true comfort, real comfort, is when we experience the mercy and grace of God to bring us out of our sin into a righteous standing. And now, not only do I have that value for myself, but I'm able to comfort others. And this is going to be the focus of 2 Corinthians. And listen, he comforts us. Paul, Timothy, their entourage. He who comforts us in all our tribulation. Why? So we can comfort others. That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which ourselves we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul understands that why he has to endure these things. Why does he have to endure opposition? Christ endured opposition. I'm a follower of Christ. If they hated your master, they're going to hate the servant of the master. You too are going to experience it. We must through much tribulation enter in the kingdom of God. But that doesn't mean that we are powerless and just sitting back and getting hammered. Paul says there's a comforter. There's a ministry of God to us whereby we are not overwhelmed. We are not conquered. We are more than conquerors. and Rather, uh, we can not only deal with and overcome those obstacles, but even through those obstacles, we are able to be better ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ to one another and to a lost and dying world. This is the work of God's mercy is to comfort, His mercy and grace. You see, we don't want to endure anything. Most of us, when we use these terms, I want God's comfort, I want God's mercy, I want God's grace, means for us, I don't want to have any problems in my life. I don't want to have any adversity. I, don't want, I want everything to go my way. And we think that is how God's comfort, mercy, grace should work. And so before I get in any trouble, I'm going to start praying for God's mercy, grace, comfort, and peace. Because I don't want to have any of that in my life. All I can tell you is the only place you're not going to have any of that is when you leave this earth. Because to say, I don't want to have any of that, I want to be insulated, means that you want to be put on a shelf by God and be unused. That's essentially what you're asking for. Uh, put me on a shelf, God, until you're coming, and I just want to be able to sit there and uh, just enjoy the view. I don't want to get down and dirty and messy in the actual work of Christ. And from what I can tell, in the kingdom of God, there is no such shelf to just sit there and enjoy the view while others do the dirty work. We have been insulated. We have in this country largely been on such a shelf. But we're going to sit back and watch. I might send a few dollars to the mission field and, and I'll try to remember to pray for them once in a while. Uh, but pretty much I'm just going to sit back and, and, and uh, uh, have an enjoyable Christian experience and uh, I expect to go to church and uh, not to have any problems. And if there are, I just secretly sneak out the back door and go find another church to be a face in the crowd where I can just sit there and absorb and grow fat in God and just sit back and be on the shelf and observe. I don't want it to cost me anything. I don't want it to interfere with the rest of my life. And I certainly don't expect to suffer. We have swallowed hook, line, and sinker the health, wealth, gospel. Now, I want to share with you, this isn't the experience of most of Christianity historically, and it's not the experience of the rest of the church today in other lands.
We think comfort means nothing bad should ever happen to me. It should never cost me anything. Paul says, no. Comfort means that you can endure even the sufferings of Christ himself. Whoa. And I want you to just, we're not going to study these verses. I don't have the time, but I want to just go through and pick out some words just to get your feeling for what we're going to be dealing with. Um, Verse 5, it says, The sufferings of Christ abound in us. Verse 6, If we are afflicted. Verse 6, Enduring the same sufferings, we also suffer. Verse 7, Partakers of the sufferings. Verse 8, Our trouble which came to us was beyond measure. We despaired even of life. Verse 9, the sentence of death in ourselves. Verse 10, so great a death. Do you get the idea? And we can keep going and we can drive ourselves on. And, but the whole focal point is understanding that true Christianity, real Christianity, does not seek to avoid suffering, but encounters it. And the comfort of God is not to circumvent it, but to plow right through it, joyfully. (laughs) This is comfort. You say, I don't think that's comfort, Pastor. I don't want to do that. That's because you're a weenie. Spiritually, we are. Let's Let's be honest. Spiritually, we are. Why are you afraid of it? Because we don't know the God that he's talking about here. The one who gives grace and peace, God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, what it fundamentally boils down to is we don't believe he is that. Because we don't believe that He can comfort us in the midst of trial and tribulation and opposition and affliction, because we don't believe that He is who He says He is, we avoid it. Sure that He will not be there to help us. He will not be there to comfort us. He will not be there to hold us through. He will not help us endure. We are sure it's us against the world alone. because this is our view of God, that He is going to let us down, we take every measure to seek to avoid what God says will be the experience of Christians. If they hated Him, they should hate you. If they hated your Savior, they should hate you. If they opposed Him, they should oppose you. But we're afraid because we don't really know who we're dealing with. Not in terms of the world. We know what they can do to us. They can take our money. They can take our houses. They can take away our jobs. They can take away our liberty of movement. Um, They might even be able to um, take our life physically. This is nothing. This is nothing. This is no power. We have comfort. We have consolation. We have a steadfast Savior. We have the strength of salvation. We're going to study this again in a couple of weeks. Um, I can't give it what it's due here. But I really want to press us do you really know this God that we just read through these first few verses and just say, oh yeah, the God of grace, mercy, peace, comfort. Yeah, okay, okay, let's get on to the text. If we do not understand who he is, then you will cower in a corner of this world and do nothing for Christ. If you don't get these first few verses. For they are the context, the foundation, the support for rushing in where others fear to tread with boldness 
Why? Because you can't do anything to me. I'm an agent of God. I am a child of His kingdom. I have eternity as my objective. Not comfort in this world. It's not the comfort He's talking about. But rather, I have ministry. That ministry is the work of God in this world, knowing that this world and its agents, Satan and sometimes self, don't want it to go on. Paul says, I understand. I understand the appeal of these other men. But their appeal is empty. Their appeal is false. Their appeal is temporal. It doesn't last. Because while you're over there trying to circumvent trouble and trying to avoid confrontation, I don't want to confront people with their sin. You know, be and let be. And that is the attitude of our society. And we have purchased it from them. We have bought into it. Be and let be. Instead of saying, this is sin. Get out of your life. By the power of the work in Jesus Christ's salvation. You see, we circumvent that confrontation. We circumvent that because we know that if we confront them, they're going to hate us. They might leave the church. They might not invite us. They might not include us. They might not talk to us. As if that's bad. That's really the worst that they're going to do to you? And you're afraid to confront ultimately because you don't know Jesus Christ. You don't really know the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, the Father of peace and of grace. For if we genuinely believed in Him, we would have no qualms. We would truly boldly go to the ends of the earth, enduring and prepared to endure any opposition, affliction, suffering, trouble, Tribulation for Christ's sake. If we really knew this God, the Father of mercies and all comfort, full of grace and peace. If He was the one we were following, if He if we were genuinely His servants, we would want to abound in the sufferings of Christ. Not because I like pain, (laughs) but because I want to produce what Christ's suffering produced, which is hope for others. And Paul recognized that anything he suffered, any trouble he encountered, that God could use that for him to Bring the gospel to those people. And it was worth it. Anything that he had to confront, whether it be rocks flying at his head, whether it be wreckage floating around him in the Mediterranean Sea, whether it be snakes jumping out of bushes, doesn't matter. I will continue to serve God faithfully because my comfort is in Him. It's not I am comforted because I feel good, my affections. No. It's comfort because I'm doing the work of God. And so I endure that. Not for my sake, but for their sake. And he recognizes this is going to come to the Corinthian church. They're going to suffer some things. They have already to some degree, but it's going to be worse. And Paul wants them to be braced up for it and ready to not cower from it, not avoid it, but rather uh, be ready to stand in the midst of it. And having done everything else to stand fast in their faith 
with the comfort of Christ, knowing that they have an eternity established for them that is just growing brighter and brighter the more they suffer. So the question comes for those of us who've spent most of our Christian life on a shelf for God watching it all. How can we comfort others when we have endured nothing? How can we really minister when we are afraid to encounter opposition That fear only tells me that we don't really know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, well. That the first sign of challenge, we back away, we shrink, we avoid, we even compromise. This is not the comfort that we're talking about here. To avoid trouble is not what Paul is referring to, but rather that we joyfully can endure it with a comfort that only the Lord gives us. That in all of our tribulations, we can keep ministering. And in fact, we minister better. So we're going to be confronted with these two models these two examples, and Paul's going to keep pressing this issue throughout 2 Corinthians. Who are you following? Because these are two very divergent philosophies, and they have two very divergent gods. Let that be clearly understood. That the God that the health, wealth people preach is not the God of Scripture. They are not his promises. They are not his, his uh, truths. They are not his example. They are not his statements. We follow a Savior who suffered and said, if they hate me, they'll hate you also, if you are really my disciples. And the challenge of Second Corinthians is can we identify true godly examples and then are we willing really to follow that example? And of course, the pinnacle example of Jesus Christ himself, which we're going to look at more fully in a couple of weeks. I want to challenge you today not to just pass by this introduction of God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. If we really, really believe this, if this is truly our God, then Avoidance, shying away, backing off, turning aside, will have no part in our Christian experience. We will press on toward the goal. Because the goal is not my physical comfort today. The goal is when I am in the presence of God's comfort In Christ Jesus, my Lord, press on.